That song is called Out of Gear by Los Straight Jackets. And I have a concern. Now, when I say I have a concern, you all recognize a Quaker language. Tell the I have a concern. You all recognize um, Val Luton's immortal movie Bedlam and the interesting Hollywood importation of Quaker lingo. And um, I have a concern. And the concern is the message of the gospel, of the message of the heart or the core of the Christian understanding of reality and hope. And I want to use, actually, two bookend songs by Low Straight Jackets, who are actually currently in Sydney, Australia, doing wonderful concerts. In the um, return of Danny Amos as Papa O'Grande, or Daddy O'Grande, from his uh, terrible illness from which he has returned so wonderfully, I want to talk a little bit about um, the gospel because I have a concern. Now, I've said this before, and I really hope you'll listen. I really hope you'll listen carefully because it's a concern which if um, the – if we don't really um, take this concern to heart, we run the risk both of failing in our individual lives as Christians and really in many cases failing dramatically and sort of nihilistically, that old Simeon's all packed with despair. But we also endanger the whole movement because the movement is very endangered in a human sense. I mean, obviously, um, these things are not in our hands humanly. The world's uh, ever-changing moods do not ultimately affect the power of God and the truth of ultimate reality. But the movement as a whole is in such a bad way. A very um, fine friend of mine who really, I think, understands these things and listens to the podcast um, religiously and with, uh, in my opinion, a kind of critical penetration, was telling me over dinner the other night. He said, um, "He said, look, I'm so sympathetic with this, and I do attend church, but I feel that the, uh, as far as the wider uh, culture in which we live, Christianity is simply synonymous for most people now, especially people who are coming along with judgment. Now, so not only if we fail to get this right as I would see it, or have we failed to get it right, and the thing begins to collapse in a historic sense, or certainly suffer, but we get it wrong in our individual lives. And why I have a concern um, is that I see this happening to people I know and love all over the place. I see it happening to people who are sitting in the pews. I have, see it happening to colleagues and friends and former colleagues and uh, uh, students and you name it, of people who are devout and dedicated and even, you might say, sold out uh, in their uh, uh, desire to uh, do good to their fellow men and women by means of the gospel of grace. And then they hit paralyzing um, personal problems that aren't, don't seem to be giving way, and then they uh, enter into some nightmare of enacted um, self-destructive behavior or compartmentalized behavior or um, behavior which seems to have absolutely no connection with their primary commitments as at least they have stated them to me. And I see people breaking down right, left, and center. And if you actually knew the truth about uh, older uh, Christians, that is to say people who are beyond retirement age, <clears throat> you would actually be quite surprised at the number of older Christians and uh, retired clergy, for example, who 
can succumb to despair and actually are in a terrible uh, um, abyss between their deeply felt faith commitments that have fueled their motivations for many years and the actuality of getting older. And uh, this is not um, an exaggeration, uh, at least in my experience. There are many exceptions to this, of course, and every so often you meet a wonderful old retired Episcopal bishop who spends his time... uh, uh, visiting uh, the sick or visiting in an Alzheimer's unit somewhere and your faith is buoyed and uh, moistened and helped. But the actual reality, and you maybe can identify with this, is that there's a compartmentalization that the gospel, for all its power, doesn't seem to touch. So this short podcast is an attempt to understand what actually happens in the gospel, <clears throat> what I see as the gap or what's been missing and what is actually um, attainable. And I actually wish that you'd take this seriously because i uh, i feel like i'm sort of a guy who who went like marco polo went somewhere far away and uh, have have returned with some news have returned with some 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 uh, something that i've seen i actually went through the um dislocation of uh, a tremendous disillusionment with all sorts of aspects of those things which I had both been and taught and attempted to um, present for many years. And when I talk about this, it's in no way to um, besmirch commitments, which I still actually have, and I share with those I always had. But aspects prove to be insufficient to the uh, facts of empirical reality uh, in myself and outside of myself. And therefore, if you don't uh, step back and say what went wrong, you um, are in danger, in my opinion, of uh, uh, going into the really darkest despair of all when when you really enter again into the place of purgatory and there is no hope because you've already been there. And you didn't, um, you might say, gain anything from the experience. Christ went into the wilderness and he emerged uh, with something. And um, I only say that because when you go into the wilderness, which almost everybody does in some form or another in their lives, for whatever reason, often self-damaged, but it could be something from outside that touches something within. When you go into the wilderness, you want to be able to come back if it's true that there is such a thing as Easter and you want to find an answer. So you might call this podcast Easter with low straitjackets. Now, um, this is what I uh, would want to say about the good news of Christianity and where it needs to perhaps go further or deeper than anything that I had really uh, counted on or understood, while at the same time affirming the core of the movement uh, originated by Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, and then so deepened by St. Paul and deepened even uh, further in the 16th century by Martin Luther and some of his followers for a long time, Carl Hall. What, um, what, have, what, have I, what have I learned and uh, what uh, is uh, the source of hope after really um, – seeing so much darkness in the church and uh, in uh, my own um, uh, fading grasp of things that were primarily in certain respects mental rather than fully integrated. Well, I played Out of Gear, which is a great short track from Viva Los Straitjackets, an early Straitjackets CD from the 90s somewhere. You, 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 your life goes out of gear. You think you're in gear, 
and you're taking all the cliches you've heard from all the various places you've heard them, and you think things are going to go a certain way. That's the way I've always heard it should be. Uh, didn't Carly Simon sing that? And then you come smack against uh, a situation. Usually it's something within yourself that is rooted in some earlier hurt, a wound of some kind that is often relatively easy to diagnose, but not easy to overcome. And you come into the wound and you go out of gear. A guy called Miller-Farenholtz, the Bremen theologian, once stated at the Church of the Advent that um, the, 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 the world was simply constantly falling off its axis and um, or running off its axis or turning off its axis and out of gear. You're in gear, what you think is gear, and then something comes up, something gets into the gearbox and you go out of gear. And that's why that's such a great, energetic, panic-stricken, desperate, urgent, wonderful, and in some ways very cool uh, song, Out of Gear. And when this happens, whether it's in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s or your 60s or your 70s or your 80s, maybe it could happen in your 90s. I've never met anybody for whom it happened after the late 70s because we do get so rigidified. But um, when you get out of gear, you are reduced to actually needing to save your soul. Now, that's ancient language, but I stand by that. You, you have to find yourself. You have to save yourself. Something has to save you. You're, you have to be saved. Not, not save yourself. You have to be saved. And it's that severe. Your whole understanding of who you are and the ego and what in control means and what mastery means and what dominating means and what victory means – is entirely rubbed the wrong way by a disaster or disasters of all sorts. The great example of this is uh, the um, John Sterling's uh, conversion to the ministry of the Church of England after uh, his friend Boyd uh, was uh, shot during a um, early 19th century coup in Malaga, Spain, and Sterling was suddenly, at a very young age after college, was suddenly shocked to understand that he had been part of something that had resulted in the um, in the execution of his two closest English public school friends, <coughs> and he immediately entered the ministry, like in five minutes, because in those days you could enter if you had the right background and credentials and schooling and title, whatever it was, you could enter the ministry rapidly. It didn't prove to be the answer, however. Because it was a partial answer, but he he needed to do more work. So you go and you find um, that God in his mercy and forgiveness is mighty to save. And this is the core charter document of, of Christ's way, which is so utterly fabulous when you are faced with a problem either of your own making, which it often is, or a combination of your own making and bitter, bitter defeating circumstances. You are exposed to the uh, great word that is kind of vivified and uh, Holy Spirit energized, and it speaks to you as a real thing that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved uh, through him. Um, Romans 5, um, and God shall love God so loved the world in John that he um, gave his son not to condemn the world. And this uh, powerful word, I've mixed a number of uh, passages there. I'm thinking of the commandment boards and the good news in uh, old Anglican churches and sometimes Lutheran churches. The news of the acceptance of the gospel of God uh, through Jesus Christ of a human being who is in sorrow and suffering and contrition is absolutely um, um, stage right. I mean, it's absolutely the perfect thing. It's absolutely powerful. 
and it creates almost immediately in the context of forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy. Don Covey, The Rolling Stones, um, uh, Cannonball Adderley, The Buckinghams, Mercy, Mercy, da 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 have mercy on me. Um, this powerful word has such a um, resuscitating effect that it creates a kind of absolute freedom to do and to speak and to act without exhaustion, without paralysis, with genuine love, and with extemporary autonomy and freedom. And I say autonomy because it's a given autonomy. And that creates this great change that people have always talked about in the when overnight they experience something that is so uh, um, uh, exuberant and so um, joyful that it has the quality of a being born again, and that metaphor is very apt. Now, what happens is that there is a tendency, certainly in Reformed Christianity and Protestant Christianity, sorry, the kind of Christianity which I've been working in so many years, the expression of it, to then constantly be importing this historical fact, you know, trust Jesus, okay, we, you, you, you continue to run into problems, even... Um, isn't that great? That's the telephone. I just love it. I think it's about time that the phone rang in one of these podcasts, but uh, it'll probably ring again shortly. The, um, the, 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 the tremendous change that happens, creating a, a f- f- sense of liberation and emotional emancipation is so powerful and love. I could love everybody, you say. Uh, John Carradine, actually the character that John Carradine plays in The Grapes of Wrath, the original character of the minister who's fallen so far, uh, talks about how he could love everybody after a revival uh, when he talks in Grapes of Wrath about uh, what he's been. And yet uh, it's been not fully... um, it's, it's, it's mixed up. And uh, then what perennially happens is we're told if we just put all our hopes on this particular thing, this particular event, this particular person. <clears throat> and while I have absolutely no quarrel with that, it becomes intellectualized. It becomes an intellectual call to think a certain thought. Now think about yourself. Haven't you found yourself doing this? You want to reach out for this great, merciful, unconditional love. You're desperate for it. You're hungry for it. But what you're told by the preacher again and again and again is that you have to sort of hold on to this thought. Got to hold on to this feeling. Um, Baby, hold on. You know that song by the, what is it, the average white man? I always, I always forget. Hold on to this feeling. And you can't do it. You, you, it's, it's something that you can't do. And so you get kind of frustrated. You intellectualize it. You believe it. You even become somewhat um, wistful about it. You remember the time when, you, when it's sort of the holding on to the feeling or the holding on to the historical reality of the death of Christ actually did speak to you at a particular moment. But to constantly summon up what is in retrospect, in the present retrospect, Hinsicht, a kind of, um, it's a kind of insistence on an intellectual truth to be applied to your emotional life. And it fails. It just fails. And this explains why so many people end up becoming really quite despairing without really even being conscious of it in the Christian walk. I just know so many people, it was so powerful when someone said, well, you know, so-and-so is such a fervent evangelical Christian. She is so on fire for the Lord. However, said this person, I'm in a Bible study with with that that with that person is on fire with the Lord, and she's absolutely all on fire unless it actually applies to anything that is of particular importance to her. In other words, if the actual gospel message should actually apply to what she's really bothered about or worried about or focused on, 
then forget it. It has no impact at all. And this is why you find such compartmentalization. And this, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is an Achilles heel. It's fatal. This is not a, 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 a wart. This is not a, a, a wound that can be um, really fixed or stitched up. Uh, it is a fatal discontinuity between an intellectual conviction and a personal excoriating, howling uh, cry of pain. And therefore, the Christian faith ends up quay Christian faith or quay a thing, <clears throat> failing a tremendous number of its uh, of its fervent uh, devotees, of its fervent believers. And that's why you have such enormous attrition. This is what we're talking about. Please take this seriously. Look at the culture wars. Look at the number of nuns, as they say. I was reading that the 20%, I'm sure it's exaggerated, because people the people that talk about the nuns, they want there to be more nuns. The people who are writing about this all the time are themselves nuns, and they're evangelistic about it. And the, more, the higher percentage they can report, the happier they are. But nevertheless, there's a large increase, especially among the so-called young, but even among old Episcopalians who are basically have had it because it didn't work. It worked for a time, or it worked in this situation and that situation, but it didn't work where the rubber hit the road, in, at least in their experience. And so you become disattached from it, and you become really disillusioned with it, and sometimes downright angry. Uh, and that, I think, is a very real experience that people have. So what is needed? Well, what is needed is an understanding that the uh that we need to we need something that we can actually that will help us uh to um, bring together the insight of the forgiveness with the devastating problem and this is where we really have something to learn about the um about the practice, for example, and I say this with uh, conviction, of meditation. Meditation is not a kind of culturally biased saffron robe deal. Meditation is simply in a, is, a, is a technique, which is age-old, which actually works if you do it, um, by which you uh, are able to disattach from uh, feelings, images, <clears throat> talk or words, <clears throat> and sensations that are in flux all the time and that are entirely like grinding away like a movie in your mind 24-7. And they absorb you and they take you down and they actually overcome all sorts of otherwise good intentions. And you're not um, disqualifying uh, good things when you meditate. You're disattaching so you can actually come in touch with God. Meditation is a means of approach to God. Because when you get out of this world, which is a, a terrible... Any luctable thing, tentacle, alien graft, which is just killing everybody. When you pull away, you um, are able to actually um, uh, identify with that which is ultimately all seeing, all knowing, and all being. This is why when I used to talk about Hitchcock's God's Eye view, there's something really quite profound in that. In uh, in uh, Rear Window, there's a very important scene where the camera for the first time pulls up and sees it from above. And you, it's the God's eye view, and it's enormously bracing and powerful because you suddenly see that a lot of the things that Billy, uh, Jimmy Stewart is uh, focused on, which are absurd and really very um, 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 seductively uh, almost evil in his intrusive snooping and his inability to see what he has before him in the person of... Uh, wonderful um 
what is her name in that? Uh, Carson Fremont, something free. Lisa Fremont, uh, played by Grace Kelly. He, he, because when you when you pull away, you see the truth of the situation, and and you really see how God sees it and how it actually is. And so meditation is not some kind of you know technique. It's really an approach to God, which uh, seems to actually work. Now there are other aspects of this, and there are all sorts of things you can say about it. But what I would say is if. Uh, Christians who are failing right, left, and center, or at least living lives of, as we used to say, quiet desperation. That's a, as a cousin said, Thoreau said that because he was living a life of, of quiet desperation. <clears throat> if you can't pull away and really come closer to the way actually God, the all seeing, reality of the universe, which is ultimately benign, personal, and hopeful, and for our good, and um, pumping for our good. If you can't do that, then you're absolutely lost, and you will become a compartmentalized, uh, pained, and ultimately, if the suppression of the uh, despair goes on too long, you'll blow. The clergy that I know that get into real trouble are clergy who have been so suppressed for so long in one area usually, but it could be other areas, two or three areas, let's say. They're so suppressed and they're so unable to actually <clears throat> detach from some absorbing inner movement that is uh, pulling away their attention all the time that finally the struggle to suppress results in an explosion because no one can do it. It's a pressure cooker. No one could do it. And then they act out in some terrible way and a ministry ends. And uh, it's the church's fault. It's the person's fault. It's everybody's fault. In a way, it's the theology's fault because it's too wrapped up in an intellectualization that is not able to activate itself or to be operative in the actual person. I find when I meditate, when I actually do it, as I've, uh, as I have been taught um, for years to do it, when I actually do it, it's not a, uh, a thing. It's a, it's a, it's a freedom. It's a freeing. And then you see, then God, the God of all grace and mercy, uh, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you might say, has a kind of uh, uh, room provided. Christ talked about this, the seven demons. You've know, you got to clear out the, the demons, you know, uh, and you have to stay cleared because otherwise other demons will come in. But when the house is swept clean, then the Holy Spirit of God uh, has the continuing function of giving us joyful <clears throat> acts of love and work of service. And then you have the ebullience and the joy of outgoing love, a purpose, and um, non-compartmentalized and integrated uh, personal authenticity. <laughs> I can't believe I'm actually saying it, but I believe it, and I've experienced it, and I see it. And every time I become too intellectualized in my uh, religious and Christian hope, I lose the authenticity, and it becomes a project or it becomes an idea, a very, very great idea that I sort of so wish I could grasp onto through the fog, but because there's so much static, <clears throat> it's receding. And uh, the uh, um, allow me to say that I uh, went to Cathay, and I found some jewels. That's really the wrong image, actually, geographically. Let's say rather that I went out west, and uh, I found something. There's gold in them Lar Hills. I found something helpful, and that has actually 
broken down the barrier and the wall of hostility, to quote the Apostle Paul. And instead of making two men, it is made of two one. Instead of two people, one of whom really wanted so much to to be the right man, God's man, the new creation, the new being, but was constantly in dialogue and in conflict with other aspects, um, the, the uh, I went west, there's gold in them, there are hills, and the dividing wall of hostility was broken down, and there's actually at least uh, the potential, uh, the hope in all sorts of situations for things that appeared ultimately bleak and despairing and compartmentalized negatives to when they come to the light and the wall is taken down, something that is absolutely marvelous and powerful and hopeful. So I conclude the podcast by concluding with the sort of final state of a man, the final state of a redeemed person, male or female, and female. Let's talk about funerals. Uh, When I um, die, I want to have this played at the end of my funeral. Um, They won't allow it, uh, and it won't be done. It'll be considered embarrassing. But this is what I would like, because I used for many years to want to have at my funeral the St. Anne's Fugue of Johann Sebastian Bach, which is a great piece of music, which is based on what we now know as Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past by Isaac Watts. The St. Anne's Fugue is grand, powerful, noble, and even slightly absurd in its Capriccio uh, coda. But um, I now know that that was a mammoth and whopping misunderstanding of uh, that it would really be basically a a statement of a profound wish that never came true, a wish that never was fulfilled. I would much rather have uh, this very happy, joyful, ebullient, and absolutely enduring a moment of cosmic divine energy played at my funeral. And the title of the, let's call it the postlude at the funeral of the podcaster is Christmas Weekend. Thank you very much.